Can well-meaning police officers get too cozy with their informants? What are the moral hazards to avoid, and how are those informants developed? Adam Banner from the Oklahoma Legal Group joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. It's always a pleasure to be here with you. We're going to jump right into our topic today, but first, we need to thank our sponsor for keeping the lights on. NOTA. NOTA is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more, and that's NOTA spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. Okay, let's say hello to our return guest and friend, Adam Banner. He's the founder and lead attorney for the Oklahoma Legal Group, a criminal defense law firm. Welcome back, Adam. How you doing? Hey, Lawrence. I'm doing well. It's uh, it's great to be back. I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. Hey, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the last time we had you on, I went and looked this up right before we hit the record button, but we had you back on, uh, I think it was back in uh, January, and we uh, talked about uh, one of your articles, the must-see legal TV. This is the, kind of your forte. You take, uh, you write for ABA Journal, and you connect pop culture with uh, real-life law and just kind of this intersection of of legal and pop culture to kind of talk about the societal impact of law in our lives. And so anyway, uh, similarly speak, I came across one of your articles there and it was titled good cop, bad cop. What happens when police get too cozy with informants? And it got me thinking, you know, police officers in a lot of ways have jobs similar to us as attorneys. They, they can sometimes get into these gray areas like we can, you know, these moral hazards and conflicts of interest. And, you know, you and I have a, you know, rules of professional responsibility that we can kind of follow. And for the most part, they kind of help us navigate those tricky waters. But, you know, police officers don't always have all of that, you know, and I very much respect police officers and the work they do for our communities, you know, the brave men and women that serve in uniform to keep our streets safe. But I want to talk about this because I've always been really interested in informants and how all that works and and comes together. So I guess, Adam, my, my opening question for you, you know, from your experience and the things that you've seen, you know, how are those real life informants developed? And then typically speaking, who do the police turn to when they want to get information that would not otherwise come to them? Well, uh, there's theoretically a lot of ways that uh, an informant relationship can be developed. Regardless, developing informants, I guess it's kind of akin to almost like domesticating a, a stray animal. And I don't want that to sound negative. It's, I just think it's a good analogy. I mean, if you think of a, a stray cat or a dog, something like that, that you might take into your home, or, or maybe you start putting food or water out for them. It's a reciprocal relationship to an extent. Obviously they need substance. You need support, comfort, what have you. There's a benefit to both sides. Um, as far as who do law enforcement usually reach out to or, or utilize uh, informants, they come from all walks of life, but typically, you know, in, in criminal defense, we see users and drug dealers typically utilized. Uh, drug users get caught with a controlled substance. Uh, they're given a chance to work with law enforcement to save themselves and maybe help catch some bigger fish, i.e. the individuals that are selling to them. Same with the dealers. They get caught and they, in turn, they roll on the wholesalers that they got their product from, wholesalers roll on manufacturers. It, it just goes on and on. My next question here, this might depend on the, the police station or the city or the state, right? And I imagine this may be different uh, across the country, but, you know, in terms of who makes that decision, you know, one police officer comes across, someone they like, maybe someone they busted, but they thought, you know, this person probably has some good information. They seem like they'd be easy to work with. And now we've got a little leverage over them. Now maybe we can utilize them to get to a bigger fish. 
who makes that decision in the chain of command? I mean, is there an official process that you're aware of for, you know, deciding who you develop as an informant and, you know, the resources that go into developing that connection? Yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head. It definitely varies from agency to agency and department to department. Since my office is located in Oklahoma City, like you mentioned, I'll go off the Oklahoma City Police Department's operation manual. According to that document, the initial use of the informant and, and developing that relationship falls on the responsibility of the officer or the investigator that is using the informant. To be fair, uh, they do have a chain of command that they have to go through, and, and there, there are some things that they have to double check and some I's they have to dot and T's they have to cross and supervisors they have to go through. And, and obviously, if, if they're going to use an informant and guarantee them some kind of benefit, uh, they have to work hand in hand with the relevant prosecuting authority to get authorization. Obviously, if they're going to offer immunity from charges or, or some other kind of benefit that rises to that level, they've got to get the okay from the prosecuting agency as well. You just talked about, uh, you know, maybe they got uh, leniency or maybe they get some immunity there from a crime committed. But in some instances, uh, police officers will pay their informants. And so when that happens, you know, typically speaking, how much are they paid? Are we talking like a full time salary or what kind of money are we talking about? No, it's 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 definitely not going to be a full time salary. It's It's usually a situation where the pay is going to be based on certain individual circumstances and situations. And just like every other attorney loves to say, it depends. These can be paid for a variety of things. Uh, you know, for the Oklahoma City PD, prices aren't set and, and prices can vary, but their manual does explicitly state that any payments exceeding $25 have to be approved by the officer investigator supervisor. Okay. Well, let's get into some of those uh, moral hazards. And I think that this is, uh, I think this is where it gets so fascinating because, you know, you and I, you know, we work as, as lawyers and, uh, you know, we're well aware of those situations that can kind of pull us into those conflicts of interest. You know, we may be helping someone out we're a little too close to, uh, and that can create some uh, hazards there. Or maybe we're trying to help people out that we're both friends with. And we have to be very careful there when we engage with our services to cross the T's and dot the I's to make sure we don't go down one of those moral hazard holes that we can can't get out of. And so I would imagine when it comes to crime fighting, you know, police officers are often weighing, you know, sort of the the pros and cons. Do I develop this informant? You know, uh, is it responsible to do this? So tell us about some of those hazards, you know, when a police officer can get too cozy with their informant. What have you seen from your perspective? Well, you don't hear much about it and you don't see a lot of stories about it. One of the things that, that I think is important, again, going back to that Oklahoma City Police Department manual that I referenced earlier, uh, there's a quote in there that officers should keep their supervisors informed of the relations and activities involving informants and, quote, informant contacts will be of a strictly professional nature. Now, different Law enforcement agencies, uh, the Tulsa Police Department, for example, their manual goes into kind of a, a list. It's not exclusive necessarily, but explains things that you aren't supposed to do with your informants, obviously engaging in sexual relationships and, and having these uh, interpersonal relationships and things of that nature. Different agencies have different manuals, and that's really the only guidance that law enforcement has to go off of. And that's not a ton of guidance always. But in that sense, if police are going to go outside of those professional boundaries there, uh, if they're engaging in relations or activities which they aren't reporting to their supervisors or, or more importantly, 
that they wouldn't report to their supervisors, you've got an issue that needs to be addressed. After all, uh, an informant is going to usually have an informant file uh, that's supposed to be kept for every individual using that capacity so that their credibility or, or lack thereof can be established. Any contacts with the informants and, and information obtained from them is supposed to be documented in those specific informant files. Uh, some agents try to put safeguards in place by mandating that officers will always be accompanied or under the direct observations of other authors when they meet with informants. But uh, it's kind of one of those situations where it's common sense. And, it, and if it doesn't look right or if it doesn't seem right or smell right, it's probably not right. Uh, if it's something that you want to tell your boss about, you know, it's probably something you shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Now, just a quick follow up on the balancing of priorities. You know, and I, I've read about this in the news and obviously we've seen this on TV with uh, cop shows. You know, you'll see a police officer that's trying to go after a really big fish criminal actor. And in so doing, they turn to somebody in the underworld who is going to have some knowledge, but they are a habitual lawbreaker and they may go to their place of residence and just see all kinds of legal activity going on in there. But they decide not to arrest someone, which they would normally do in exchange for an opportunity to go after someone that is much more dangerous and much more impactful in a negative way to a community. But, you know, that line can only go so far. So, you know, just based on, you know, your observations, you know, where do you think that line is? You know, I think that that's, that's kind of that gray line that can move depending on the circumstances. So that's a really hard decision for anybody to make. It definitely is. And, and, and again, it kind of piggybacks on, the uh, the answer that that I gave you earlier. It's one of those situations where common sense goes a lot further than people want to give it credit for. You know, the few manuals that I've utilized in, in cross-examining law enforcement officers throughout my career, they prohibit certain activities, engaging in entrapment or, or using an informant that is wanted for a criminal offense. Also, police usually aren't allowed to utilize an informant on probation or parole without the officer's supervisor's approval. I've seen some manuals that prohibit a controlling officer from utilizing family or kin or informants as well. But again, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. They have to let some of this illegal activity fly in order to let their informants gather the information that they ultimately are going to need to establish a case. That's just the name of the game. It's the nature of the beast. Law enforcement want to get civilians to do their dirty work, which will likely include some low-level legal activity and hopefully a controlled situation in order to put up a much larger bust. But you know, as far as where that line is drawn, I like to make the correlation to taking an individual, a client into to meet with federal agencies or, or prosecutors during a rule 11 meeting to proffer information that could potentially lead to them being an informant. You know, in, in that situation, the government is willing to listen to and, and usually excuse most of all the illegal activity that that the defendant is going to disclose as long as it's going to be beneficial for the government, obviously. However, they do have to draw a line, and usually that line is drawn in regards to serious, heinous crimes such as murder or, or crimes against children and things of that nature. 
Well, that's a really good uh, segue into my next question. And so, you know, it's real important, as you were alluding to in your article, that that these relationships with the informants are kept above board because at some point, you know, this investigating police officer, they're going to want to bring this evidence to a court and make that bust. But you cited, I think it's pronounced Jiglio versus U.S. and also Brady versus Maryland. Of course, that's the Brady case that gives us all of our Brady rights. But you cited those cases where you know, you've got to keep these relationships above board because it could ultimately shoot your investigation in the foot while the prosecutor is trying to make the prosecution's case. So can you uh, build that out for us a little bit? Yeah, depending on the severity of the infraction and and when the issue is discovered, uh, whether that's by a professional and unbiased prosecutor just doing the right thing and disclosing that information, or perhaps a defense attorney who's challenging the issue or or the use of the informant or the conduct of the officer, uh, you could have a a lot of different repercussions that could follow. Uh, You could have suppression of testimony, whether that's the testimony of the controlling officer or perhaps even the informant if the issue is discovered uh, prior to trial. Uh, If the issue is discovered after trial or or during the pendency of an appeal, you might have a new trial for the accused. Uh, You could also have potential sanctions against the officer and even censure of the informant where they can't be used anymore. They basically have a red mark. That agency can't use them and, and really no agency can use them anymore because when you have that informant file, that information should be kept in the informant file And in order for law enforcement to move forward, utilizing an informant, they have to be able to show a court that this individual is reliable. So what you're saying is it's best to, uh, you know, take your time, get it right the first time so you have the most successful result. Yeah, again, and and I know I keep harping on this, but common sense just goes so far. Individuals, whether it's the prosecution, the defense, the informant themselves, sometimes people get so caught up in the task at hand that they lose all objectivity. Keep it simple, be objective, do the right thing, and use your common sense. Well, Adam, thank you so much for being here with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Lawrence. I appreciate it. I'm glad you guys reached out to me, and I always enjoy getting a chance to talk with you. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you liked our episode, share it with a friend through your app via text message. It's a great way to share shows you like with people you like. And one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LT and audio crew. They are relentless in their dedication to getting the highest quality, the finest productions out there. So very thankful you guys uh, just knock it out of the park every time. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. Bye.